Hello and welcome to At Length. I'm Steve Scher. Part two of a walk through Seattle's Chinatown International District with scholar Marie Wong. She's written Building Tradition, Pan-Asian Seattle, and Life in the Residential Hotels. The interview came out of an assignment for Seattle Magazine. I wrote a story for the December 2018 issue focused on Wong's work and the future of the ID. This is a long interview, as was the previous, part one. It was a nice long walk and we wandered, but if you want to jump around, there's an annotated list on the podcast episode webpage, and there you can just jump to parts that interest you. You have a flashlight there. Were you going to show me something? You know, I, I had asked you if you wanted to take a look inside the vacant part of the Gongyuk yes. West Building. If that's doable, heck yes. Oh, this is nice. A little wooden door and a... Who used to walk up these stairs? Uh, this was one of the entryways into uh, the hotel, the side entrance. Um, you know, the, all of these hotels, that's the other thing, is that even though they were designed by architects, uh, depending on who owned the building, sometimes they would change the interiors of the buildings after they occupied them. So, um, but this is, <laughs> this is basically the original side stair. Oh, and here's, this, here's the light well you're talking about. Very narrow. Well, not very narrow. Oh, big. So the light comes in on both sides. Yeah, we just had um, we had to have part of the building rekeyed just recently, just last week. Why were people living here? Um, no, someone broke into the boardroom and stole the keys. So, so here's as an urban historian, I can see why you would value this building. Um, Somebody who likes to see old things refurbished, I would like to see them maintained. But as you mentioned, um, you know, people, people move. And if I want to go to a really good Korean restaurant, I can go out to Linwood. And as you mentioned in Portland, oh, I've got to close this door. people, yeah. oh, sorry. No, that's all right. People move to uh, 82nd and, what is that, Sandy? Where are they at? 82nd Division. Division, that's mm -hmm. right. So, is it just metal? And maybe that's the process. And then other people move in, knock buildings down. This, this will give you a really good idea of what it might roll. Oh, man. I'm in New York City. So a light well, and it's covered on oh. top, but it has skylights. This one had to be covered, um, and in fact, this happened with a lot of the residential hotels. The Atlas Hotel that is down the block, um, they had to cover their light well. Um, you know, part of it is vermin that you're trying, that you're fighting, pigeons, rats, um, but also water that does tremendous damage and. All of these buildings, you know, if you had a light well, you also had a drainage system. And we all know that the drainage systems in uh, the city of Seattle are all collapsing because, you know, they just had concrete pipes that they would lay. Or, um, you know, the, a lot of the plumbing is corroded. They used cast iron. So everything that you're looking at now is basically what, this, what the spaces were like 
when this building closed in the mid-1970s. Nothing has changed. Um, I'm going to say with the, with the exception of um, there have been two movies, <laughs> contemporary movies that have been shot using this building. Um, one of them, I haven't seen either one of them, but one of them was, um, I think it was called You Just Can't Win, and the other one was The Man in the High Tower. Oh, yeah. Or, yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, The Man in the High Tower. That was, yeah. a, that was an Amazon show. So was this the bathroom? Yes. This was the shared tub or shower and? Yeah, that was one of them. I mean, mm -hmm. did this also look like this in 1930? No, this would have, no, this, if you think about this building, this building would have been teeming with people and uh, activity and, you know, it was a living, working, breathing building, you know, with, with, um, with Chinese laborers. Um, and the difference between, even though the building, the East building and the West building they may have, they're called the twin buildings, but they're actually not exactly the same. You know, the facades are slightly different, but also the intentions of the buildings were different because this building was intended to be used by those Chinese that would also be going back to China on visits. So, um, uh, you know, smaller, a lot. Smaller rooms? Well, there was, a more, there was more turnover, yeah. Oh, and the other ones, people might have been living there for a year or who knows. Or who knows, yeah. A lot of people, in fact, they, they expected SRO living to be, you know, just people who would stay for a short period of time, but in reality, a lot of people have stayed in these buildings, you know, for decades, literally decades. I've met people who have lived in an SRO for 50 years. That was their home. Mm -hmm. um, and I think a lot of it, it has to do with how we as a society have defined home. What is home? You know, are, are we just looking at the single family house? Are we looking at suburbia? Are we looking at, you know, uh, shared dwelling units? That we, you know, we've always had this feeling that close proximity is a very negative thing. Um, sociologists in the 1920s were so harsh on uh, what was what was the residential hotel buildings. Yeah, yeah. tenement hotels wasn't yes. that the phrase? Yeah, yeah. they hated them. Um, oh, I know this is so hard to see, but you know the electricity was disconnected a long, long time ago. Mm -hmm. So, but this is this yeah. is this is like a, a a trip into the past on these yeah, this, these corridors. Well, this is um, actually this would have been kind of the the their version of the firewall because if you look at it, you've got one hallway here and a stairwell, and then you go up here and you've got another oh. hallway and stairwell and you know that's dividing what would be I guess two portions of this building. Oh, so, so there was some so they're making some effort to oh, contain. Now yeah, this is oh this is the old, oh wow. Wow. So an old bathroom uh -huh. with the one door one one door stall still standing and a couple of old toilets. So, you know, the sizes of these rooms varies, but this is, you know, one of the smaller rooms. This is a small room. Yes. You could fit a single bed in here and maybe a little writing desk or a table with a hot plate on it and a little dresser, right? And that's it. And a window. Yeah, but they all had windows, so that was, you know, something. Wow. When was this building built again? 18? 1910. 1910. Mm -hmm. So yeah. this is 100 years of people 
well, not quite 100, right? So what is that, 60? When did this close, 70? Uh, this, this portion closed in right after the Ozark Hotel ordinance, yeah. 60 years of people living here. Wow, well, what a remarkable space. What are we looking at? What's that light? Is that the front of the building? Uh, I think that is a, um, an area where they have boarded up part of the building. And so, like, is this room, is this room bigger? Slightly bigger? Probably. The, the sizes of these rooms varies. It's, they're not typical. Oh, yeah, this is a bigger room. Yeah, and if you wanted to rent, let's say that you had a family, uh, that some of these rooms you can see that they've got doors. So you had the, the option that you could rent two rooms that would be right next to each other, and you could have one that would maybe function as a living room, one that would be a bedroom, or you could have, you know, this would be a bedroom, your children would have one bedroom. Yeah. Did, did people, so people had to work to live here. I mean, they had to have, pay yes. a rent, but was the rent, I mean, was it for low income people affordable uh, 60 or 100 years ago? Uh, yeah, you could stay in a room. Well, during the depression, uh, you could rent literally a bed in a, a large room for um, a nickel. Um, you could stay in one of these rooms for 10 cents a night and then there was a price break if you wanted to pay the rent for a week or a month or a month. Um, sometimes, uh, and this is kind of interesting, but for some of the owners of residential hotels, if you had somebody who was living in your hotel that, um, you know, they just kept living there but they weren't paying the rent, sometimes the owners would give them a month's rent just to move to another building because they couldn't keep taking care of, you know, one person without being able to collect any rent on the on the unit. Pretty nice, aren't Pretty nice views. I'm looking at Columbia Tower, Smith yeah. Tower, the train clock, there's Safeco. They don't take out any loans. You know, whatever work happens in the building, the corporation pays for it, you know. So it's kind of that that mentality of you pay cash. But um, this building ha was recently, the retrofit was completed in anticipation of the unreinforced masonry ordinance that the city is getting ready to pass. Um, so this building has already been retrofitted, which is why you'll see some of the boards that have been pulled up from the flooring. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. I mean, that wasn't the argument though that, well, if you're, it takes so much longer because you're self-financing and that's why some yeah. of these buildings remain vacant for so long. Yeah. But they can afford it because they own the property. Well, we own the property, but then so do all these other organizations. They own the property, but this, the corporation, I, I'm just always amazed by the fact that the corporation has remained uh, viable. Um, and, you know, that's, I think, something in the forefront of the minds of, of the directors that, you know, they look at this as a responsibility. I mean, one of the board members, Curtis Wu, Curtis has got such a long history in the district, his family, uh, you know, being part of the original Pioneer family. But Curtis has been on the board for 40 years. So literally from the time that he's a teenager, his father got him interested in the board and he has been on the board ever since. That's yeah. phenomenal. Yeah, that's not the kind of legacy we have in American business or American real estate, right? Well, and if you talk with him, he, he is totally convinced that there is a solution to rehab this building in a sensitive, caring way that is going to still retain the corporation, uh, provide an income for the shareholders, the, the descendants, um, and 
bring this building back to total life again. And that's the kind of person that you really need Can, on the board. And does he believe you can do that and have affordable housing as part of that? Or does that have to be market rate? Uh, you know, we're still talking about that. We would, we would actually like to see a mix. Sure. But we have had, you know, we've had a development plan that was done and they told us that no way that's not going to happen. Um, I don't, I'd like to think they're wrong that we can do a mix. I mean, why not of having market rate and low income individuals, not just living in the same neighborhood, but living in the same building? No, I mean, that was the plan at one point for the yeah. way they were gonna fund those, uh, what were they were gonna ask of developers who were building the large towers north end of, you know, north end of downtown and other places. But yeah. they've all, most of them have opted instead to pay into this mythical fund. I should, call, I should call it mythical, but. No, it's a fund, although we don't know where it's going to end up. We don't know what kind of uh, units they'll end up constructing. I would be as surprised if they actually do build low-income housing, but we'll see. They're supposed to. I mean, isn't that the law? Well, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm naive. This looks like any typical hotel of any era, and I like how wide the aisles are. Yeah. The hallways are wide. It's well, just, you, you can see, I, I was talking about the transom windows. Oh, yeah. yeah, all of these had to be, uh, basically, they, you had to get rid of all the transom windows because these were all glass and they had the mechanism that, you know, would open it up. And the reason that they wanted them sealed was because if, if in case of fire, you know, fire would just go through any one of these if it was open just immediately um, because of the air. So, you know, this was just part of the cost of, of bringing this building up to standard. and. But, they had to close it. Don't I see buildings with transom windows being built today? Are they just more, is it, is it fire resistant glass? No, they, they may be decorative, um, but, and there may be glass there, but they're sealed uh, in this case. What does that mean you can't open them? You can't open them, yeah. Hey, uh, is that the attic up there? This is. This is. I don't have a key to get up there and That's good. oddly enough. <laughs> it freaked me out, I think. You know what? I'm afraid of heights. <laughs> and I've been stuck on a number of these things, so I just <laughs> I don't know. Did you want to walk down here? Yeah, or, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. But I will say you need new uh, batteries in your flashlight. Yeah. Yeah, some of these building these rooms are great. I mean I see they're small ones, but they're also I mean I I'd live in there. Um if you look at, well, the Alps Hotel, for example, because um, that's another building that Mr. Poe did. Uh -huh. And he did something that was really interesting. He kept the original footprint of the rooms, and he turned every one of the units into its own self-sustaining apartment. So you can go in the room, and it has a tiny little refrigerator, a stove, a shower, but the footprint of the SRO room is, is what he used. So it didn't change. Who's living there? Uh, as, as far as I know, the building is fully occupied, and um, it's you know market rate housing. So is it is it? They're a like micro units. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But is it? Are they white people? Asians? I mean, is mixed? Do you know who's moving in? I don't know who's moving in, but it wouldn't surprise me if it's mixed. This kind of concerns me, and I, you know this this boarded up window here because now we're talking about pigeons or other vermin that can easily get into the building, so. 
I have to but, call the guys. But there's the, this is the retrofitting you're talking about, those, those uh, metal meshes, that's I'm part of. I'm not sure what this is. I think that's the way you put flooring down underneath the wood. Well, hopefully we won't run into any rats. I hear I hate them. Really, rats and pigeons? Yeah. So when you uh, do tours mm -hmm. of this neighborhood, empty space, just a window and a hallway. Yeah, is it? It's nice. I bet people would just hang out here and smoke cigarettes, right? Why not? Yeah. <laughs> just. <laughs> would you? Is this where people would come? This is worthless. This flashlight. <laughs> yeah. We'll use this. Is this where people would come? Oh, the students? Yeah. Yeah. Every chance that I, I get. Um, I like to take them into kind of a combination. This building, but then to show them what can be accomplished. And that's, you know, taking them into the NP Hotel, the Eastern Hotel, so that they can see, you know what, these buildings can be rehabbed, and they can be rehabbed into really wonderful residential spaces for people to yeah. live. Yeah. yeah, the problem, again, the problem isn't, oh, look at that new copper pipe. The problem isn't that uh, they can't be rehabbed, I hope. The problem is who, who gets to move in when they're rehabbed. Yeah, and where does the money come from? Yeah. You can kind of see where they've done the anchoring for the, re the retrofit. Sure. Yeah. Bolts right into the masonry. Yeah. Into the brick, rather. And they left the, uh, they left the flooring. So the flooring you know one of the plans that we were looking at is we, we want to retain the flooring mm -hmm. uh, because the flooring is fantastic Wait, this, is, this is not subflooring this is the floor no this is the floor so it's old really nice fur yeah really beautiful really beautiful yeah new copper pipes from sheetrock is this the window well too oh yep. my god this window well is going to be the death of me i think they're so cool yeah, we're already seeing signs of pigeons 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 but I do know that, you know, if you take your students into a space like this, I can talk with them about ordinances, I can talk with them about Asian American history, but you take them in a space like this and you talk with them about history, it's real. And it's real at a level that I, I cannot do in the classroom. Well, because we're staring at these walls and these hallways and you can hear the, you can hear the ghosts, you can hear the spirits. Yeah. Yeah, you really can. I'm looking for the wall that uh, the movie company, it was so funny. They wanted, they wanted the building to look old. Yeah, here it is. They wanted the building to look old, so they actually put up wall, old wallpaper and then sprayed it to make it look old. And I thought, why are you bothering? <laughs> Just, the, the building itself's not enough. Oh, yeah, look at that. Yeah, this is new. This was for the. Uh, this for was the, for the, the movie. The high, the Mary yeah. High Castle. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it, that Chinese Americans, well, and Japanese Americans too, were 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 building these hotels a hundred years ago for the workers who were moving through or settling down. It's as you're saying, right? It, it was the same thing when I read that Okada book. Just the way history is told leaves so many <laughs> pieces of history out yeah that but they're right in front of our faces well and this was a great way if, you know if you had a family and you were part of the Japanese American community if you had a family this was the best way for you to afford to keep your family together um, yeah and your kids had friends 
You had a community, right? Yeah, it was very much, very much community. Keep your family together, and you earn a living. Um, you know, it helped. It helped stave off really bad economic times. How did a place like this function? When, um, well, when were some of the major uh, racist riots of the, the you know, chasing uh, Asian Americans out of mostly Chinese Americans, right, out of Seattle and Tacoma, or trying to chase them out. When were, when were most of those? Well, Tacoma was 1885, Seattle was 1886. And I'm kind of glad you asked the question, because in 1886, one of the reasons that they, um, that they were able to go into the Chinatown core, now that's when it was located at 2nd Washington, but one of the, the, um, the excuse that they gave was they wanted to see whether the, um, the city's ordinance, cubic air ordinance, was being upheld. The what, the what ordinance? The cubic air ordinance. So they, they adopted it just the same as San Francisco did, where every person had to have, and, and San Francisco was 500 uh, cubic feet of airspace per person. And um, so that's what they used. The city passed or they adopted a similar ordinance. Then they went into the district to see whether the buildings were um, complying with the ordinance, and they found that they were not. Well, of course they weren't, because oh, yeah. we're talking about a large group of single males that were all occupying residential hotels. So in a way, the expulsion of Chinese out of Seattle happened because of non-compliance with a city ordinance. Yeah. But it sounds kind of contrived. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> it's the legal way to do it. Oh, here's the little laundry room yeah, and fuse box. Too. Well, I think just looking around, you can kind of see why it is so incredibly expensive to upgrade these buildings. And you know, the spaces would be compromised and uh, I, I don't know. It's uh, this is a tough issue, and we still have you know part of this building is occupied. So, if the entire building goes under restoration, then the people who are living in the building, we have been told they all have to be relocated. Um, and then you you know it's the same kind of you can you're invited to come back to the building when it's done, but then the cost of living here is going to be you know far out of your times. yes, yep. Anyway, in the where the people are living in this building, did the is it knob and tube wiring there, or is it copper pipes and new new wiring systems? For the new buildings? It, the, no, for the you said people are still living in this building, right? Oh, um, that section of the building was redone. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah. So yeah, so it gets redone. I mean, they, these lights that turn on by the exit sign and all that, these are all brand new. That's all brand new wiring right there. So yeah, it takes you back to that notion of what is home and how we identify home. That's right. right. Home is where you hang your hat. Yes. Yes. And we can make anything home. That's why those people that live on the streets look like they've got their homes around them. I yeah. Mean, they're their homes. They do. They do. You know, we, we know we've built tiny house um, developments throughout the city. Uh, I, I know that we've got one in the Capitol Hill area. Mm -hmm. uh, it's kind of a Capitol Hill slash Central District area. And we know that the tiny house, you know, it, it's, it works. Um, people live in them, but when you think about a tiny house, all it is is, a, is an independent SRO room. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Same thing. I don't know. I, sometimes um, working on this stuff, honestly, it, it does become exhausting. 
But I keep thinking that if, if I stay with it, that the answer will come, that we'll figure this out. It just takes a little more time and a little patience. I don't know, these buildings, once you start looking at them, you can't, you just can't let them go. You can't give up. I don't know what it is about them. What is it about them? Well, you know the crystal, um, it's on second or first. It was a, it was a lovely terracotta building. That they, and it had, it had a uh, saltwater pool in the basement. And they left, you can see it, right? They left the, the, the terracotta facade in the front, right? Like, like <laughs> attached by bolts to the new building. I mean, it looks, it's, it's abominable because it's not true, right? Yeah. I mean, these are real places. These are true places. When you think about all of the tremors and earthquakes that these buildings have withstood, even before the unreinforced masonry ordinance, these buildings are still standing. Um, now, granted, we didn't have a widespread shallow earthquake. We had a narrow and deep earthquake. But the way they built these, they really put a lot of thought, a lot of effort, and a lot of quality work into the construction of these buildings. And uh, I would hate to see anything happen that would change the nature of the use of these buildings to where it no longer represents the community that this neighborhood, it was built for a specific kind of community. And I'd hate to see all of that gone. I think, honestly, I, I think it would break my heart to see that happen. So the Ji Hao Oak yep. Tin Family Association. Yeah. So you mentioned there were associations, tongs, and family groups? There's, uh, there are kind of three categories or classifications of associations. There's the district association. So just people who literally represent the same provincial area of China. So that's kind of a broader based association. Then there's the family association. So, you know, I would be part of actually traditionally um, my brothers since they're, you know, Wongs. But they would be part of the Wong family association. But you also had the option to join your wife's family association. So you could be a member of your district association your family name, your wife's family name, and then there are the Tongs, and the Tongs were a discretionary membership. So they, their concerns were more business-oriented for business protection and, you know, yeah. yeah. So do you know what the history of the Jihao Oak Tin Family Association is? Uh, I can tell you that this is one of the oldest, if not the oldest, family association that's in, um, in Seattle. And they were located in the old Chinatown area. They built this building, and when this building was rehabbed, it was rehabbed by Interim Community Development Association. So they're responsible for rehabbing this, the NP, the Rex, and then the last one that they did was the Eastern Hotel, and those were done, that the Eastern Hotel was done in 1997. What's this building? This is the Eclipse Hotel, um, and this is... It's boarded up. It's boarded up, the top level is boarded up. Um, this is um, owned by uh, the Dong family, and in fact, uh, one of the descendants also sits on the Gong Yuk Investment Company board. Um, he is uh, our treasurer, a great guy, really, really nice, um, and so precise. You know, we're really lucky because we've got a great board now, and I know I keep saying that, but I, I'm 
we like each other and we really want to keep working together. We want to keep looking for answers. Um, yeah, so, so here's, this is another SRO, huge, yes. boarded up, but yes. the local, yeah, there's Duck Lee right there. So the lower, the lower businesses are still in operation. Yeah. Is there a plan for that? Nothing yet, nothing yet. And who knows, maybe once we get a plan for the, um, the Gongyuk West building, uh, maybe that will help provide answers for other property owners. Um, but, you know, as we walk around with the new Central Hotel, um, it's, it's so interesting because some of these buildings were owned by uh, Japanese-American corporations that would then be operated by Japanese-Americans. The Milwaukee was Chinese-owned, but its management was under Japanese-Americans. Uh, the Gongyuk West building, um, at one time it was the LVM hotel business and that was operated by Filipino Americans. So we're talking about a district that has always been Pan-Asian. Uh, it's been Pan-Asian since the beginning of their settlement in Seattle. What's that building, the new one? Uh, I hate to say I never pay attention to the new buildings, but to me the new buildings are just, oh my God. <laughs> well, they, they don't seem to have even made an effort to fit in. I guess that's because, I don't know why. I don't know why that happens. Well, we had talked um, just, um, I don't know, I think it was in one of the email correspondence and you were interested in the hotels that were gone. Yeah. Um, so many hotels just in this immediate district. Really? Yeah, so if you look across the street here. Wait, do you know how many are gone? A lot. Oh, <laughs> yeah. You know, it depends on how you would define the hotel. Would you define it as just the hotel building or occupied by a specific group or the land itself? Um, you know, I mean, when I look at the, I look like down Maynard, I see, I mean, there's that bank building that's, that's from the 60s. Yeah. Um, the, it's a single story building. Behind that's a, an old house, an old sort of traditional sort of Seattle clapboard house. I mean, were, was this a much denser, more densely occupied district, like all the way down to Dearborn, and all these parking lots and lower buildings are newer? Yeah, in fact, the parking lots, you can kind of trace it, that a lot of the parking lots occurred right after the Ozark Hotel Ordinance. And I'm gonna say some more of them after the incarceration of the Japanese. Um, that, you know, a lot of these buildings, like we're looking at the ones that are masonry, but there were a lot of them that were frame buildings. And a lot of those frame buildings were located on 6th. So right in front of, in fact, the area that is the old Wajimaya store parking lot and the apartments that have been added on to the old Publix Hotel, that whole area used to be residential hotels. The place where Hinghei Park is, that was the Fuji Hotel, um, and uh, the Dreamland Hotel was located there. Uh, if you go to the Publix, the Publix was actually the last residential hotel that was built by a man by the name of William Chappelle. Now, William Chappelle, you can, you're gonna be hard pressed to find him in any history book. Nobody wrote anything about him, and I think part of it may be because he had such a notorious reputation. But um, he owned just a core, a concentrated core of residential hotels in that area that were all frame buildings. So from the Publix Hotel, if you were to walk from starting at 5th and King Street to 
um, 6th, and then you turn around the corner and you go south on 6th, so basically where the old Wajimaya was. Uh, the hotels that used to be there, there was the Russell Hotel, the St. Nicholas, the UI, the Tokyo, then the UI again because it was built in, an, in the shape of an L. Um, uh, the, the, the UI hotel that's on 6th, uh, right next to that there was the France Hotel and then right next to that was the Paris Hotel. And every single one of them were hotels that were owned by William Chappelle. He was the single largest uh, Caucasian property owner in this area. Why was he notorious? because every single one of those hotels were body house hotels. Yeah, and people in the district knew it, the families. I mean, you're raising your families, you've got children in the district. They all knew what was going on. None of the parents ever had to give any explanation of what was going on. Everybody just knew it. And, you know, in some ways, people knew that the one thing that they all had in common that kind of transcended the racial barriers was that they were all financially poor. They were all economically struggling. And that was like the great unifier. So you would know, um, in fact, in the, in the book I talk about, the knowledge of what someone does for a living really was secondary to the fact that we all shared this community. And that's something that we don't have a handle on now. No. But they knew it. They knew it well, and that's because they were all together. Yeah. Yes. What, what's the Friedman Building, These Hong Kong? These are all SROs. Are they not anymore? Are those, those are, re, that was rehab. Looks They're like the rehab. Friedman was rehab. That's rehab. The Hong Kong, in fact, that's the building I was telling you about that's really, it's the Mar Hotel officially, but they call it the Hong Kong Building. Um, but that was an SRO that's now market rate apartments. The Alps Hotel is the one that is market rate micro units, uh, not that's the SROs. one with the green, um, the the green window the green, sashes. Yeah, in fact, the uh, last hand laundry uh, was located in that building, and I got to see it when it closed. That was the Renew Cleaners. Um, so 80s or 90s? Sometime, I'm going to say sometime in the last 20 years. Yeah, yeah. And um, actually, photographer Dean Wong, that was his family's business. Yeah. He's still taking photographs of everything you can imagine. And in fact, uh, he wrote a book uh, entitled Seeing the Light, which is um, basically about photographing Chinatowns and Chinese Pan Asian communities throughout the United States. It's a great book, and in fact, you know, you know how Dean is. He's very quiet, and he's very unassuming, and he doesn't draw any attention to himself, and he kind of, he kind of floats in the district uh, documenting things. But uh, Dean's book won the Before Columbus Book Award, which is an award that recognizes um, the history and the documentation of uh, our cities you cannot nominate yourself. Nobody else can nominate you for it. It's uh, it's probably one of the best, if not the best, writing award that an author could possibly get. So um, yeah, in the Ohio Hotel. Is that this one here with the what is it, what are those letters? Do you know what those letters? Is that uh, an association? It might be an association. I'm I'm your quintessential Chinese American, non-Chinese speaking person. Where were you born? I was born in Des Moines, Iowa.
you can't get any farther from the district. And I, you know, that's probably one of the reasons why the district started meaning so much to me. You know, in, in the absence of, you know, identity. And at the time, I mean, I grew up in the 60s in Iowa, and there were still a lot of hard feelings left over from the Second World War, uh, the Korean conflict, that, you know, if you looked even a little bit Asian, you were the enemy. And, um, you know, so that's the environment I came from. So to come to the district where I can walk around and nobody thinks anything of me, oh, I love it. Did you go into Chicago very much? My dad did. He had kind of a, uh, was almost like an exchange program because there were so few Chinese that were living in the Midwest. I mean, there were only two families in my hometown. Um, so my dad would grow vegetables and, uh, you know, fruits, and then he would, you know, every fall they would go into these galvanized buckets and boxes, and then we would go to the restaurants in Chicago, Rochester, and in Minneapolis, and um, he would kind of do an exchange. They would give him meat and, and fish, and he would give them fresh vegetables. So that was, you know. That's a serious circuit, Minneapolis, Rochester, and then. Gosh, it almost makes me want to cry. I haven't been there in a while. I don't know what's happening with their Chinatown now. I do know that they have the same kind of, well, a similar building to um, the um, the Sing Fat building in, in San Francisco. So they, they, in some ways, adopted that same kind of Asian motif. Um, you know, Seattle, though, the Chinese when they were getting ready to build the West and the East Gongyuk buildings, they really believed that they had picked a building style that could be mimicked all over America, anywhere where there were Chinese people. They thought this was the building, this was what was going to be constructed. They were so convinced that this was the style. And if you think about it, all this is happening 1909, 1910, it's all happening at the same time that they were doing planning for the Alaska Yukon Pacific Expo, where the Tokyo um, exhibit and uh, the China Village exhibit were following the temple motif. But at the same time that the Chinese and, and the Japanese are doing that, they're doing this kind of building in the district. San Francisco, my son lives in, in um, inner Richmond. It's mostly Chinese, many first generation Chinese, many, many, so then second generation too. And then some, not really very many Japanese that I can think of, but South Asians are moving into that neighborhood now too. Mm -hmm. But whatever was San Francisco's Chinatown, isn't that, that seems mostly gone. And that it seems like it's out in these other neighborhoods now. Yeah. Akin to what I was saying about how, you know, Linwood or Better Way. We started seeing a lot of shifting of the business ownership on, and um, the core of San Francisco's Chinatown. Gosh, that happened probably 30 years ago that a lot of the businesses were being sold to Middle Eastern concerns. So if you go into a lot of those businesses that you, you know, they may still have the Chinese name and from your recollection, they are still Chinese businesses, but they're actually not owned by the Chinese anymore, which is kind of what's happening here with the hotels. You know, I mean, we run that risk that if they can't bring the building up to standard and they can't bring it up to code, that you've got a choice, you close it or you sell it 
or you take out an astronomical loan and uh, try to get corporate partners that will help you get get a developer in line so that you can come up with that 24 million. So right down the street is is that the Publix? What's right down the street across from the uh, the Allen development and the and the International District train station? Is that the big white building is the Publix, and That's, then um, so who owns the Publix? Uh, that is still owned by the Moriguchi family. Yeah, um, the extension that they did the the apartments that that is kind of the the, the Publix. I don't know what they call it. Is it's the public annex, but um, they built that right over what used to be the Rainier Heat and Power Company smokestacks. Yes because the city of Seattle did not have utility lines in this part of the city when the city was developing. And so a lot of these residential hotels actually bought their power, their steam heat and their power from the Rainier Heat Power Company that was owned by William Chappelle, who was the guy operating the bordellos. So, yeah. So they were building, they were burning wood, they were building, burning wood coal. chips? Oh, they are burning coal. Yeah, and the, the network is this where we talk about the myth of Chinatown? Because the network... Oh, there's things I haven't even asked you oh yet. Oh my gosh. Um, We're doing this again. This, Yeah, this didn't make it in the book, but the network of power lines, they had to apply for a franchise from the city. Then that would give them the right to run their power lines underneath the city public right-of-way. You have to have a franchise. Uh, that's part of a franchise district approval. So. Chappelle had his power lines going up and crossing Jackson Street. So, I mean, if you think about the power plant itself being down here, but the, the lines are running up 6th. Underground. Underground, crossing the streets underground and connecting across Jackson Street. That's how he was able to sell utilities to some of these other buildings and businesses. And the majority of his businesses, um, the people that were renting, were uh, Japanese Americans. Now, one of the myths, though, is that there's this underground Chinatown, and you'll hear a lot of people talking about it. In reality, what it was, was if you were going to run utility lines underneath the public right-of-way, you had to allow access for public or for city inspectors to make sure that they were safe. So sometimes the city inspectors would go into these underground locations and they would see that they were being used as storage spaces and the Chinese were using them to store fireworks. Not the safest thing that you could do, but I think that became kind of the foundation of the myth of the underground Chinatown. Right, wasn't there that was was part of the myth, and then people would get knocked on the head, and they'd be taken out to yes. see. Was that? Yes. That's you haven't found any reality no, to those stories. No, there's no reality to that. The only reality that I have ever found in the basements of these buildings, and you know, just looking around, I've been in the basement of probably the majority of these hotels before they were restored. And um, the one thing that you can say is, if there were any complicated passageways. They were in the basements to protect people who were gambling. That you will find. And um, I've seen some really interesting things. Like what? You mean like, like what? Um, the Milwaukee Hotel um, had gambling. Actually, all of these buildings, gambling was nothing new. All, everybody gambled. And then they would have runners that would connect um, uh, 
people who were playing um, the lottery, the, the central office was actually still at Second Washington. So you'd have, and if you think about it, these runners were running, what, four or five times a day between here and Second Washington. So it's uh, lively, oh yeah, very lively. The Milwaukee Hotel um, in the basement had a, a, gambling, um, a gambling den. And before the parking, the, the building was actually kind of gutted out underground so that they could put parking underneath the Milwaukee. And so when I went in there to take a look at it, it still had the, the gambling cage where you could buy your chips. That was the most beautiful cage I think I have ever seen because it was solid brass and polished brass. Did it get preserved? No. It got destroyed? Yes. A lot of things that have been part of the district have been unfortunately taken to the landfill. So uh, in meeting some of the contractors and construction workers, if they knew something was going into the dumpster, and you know, Donnie Chin was a friend of mine, and he was the one who talked with me about the art of dumpster diving, which I prefer to call the preservation of urban artifacts. Um, but they would call me and they'd say, hey, we got a sign we're getting rid of. Do you want to come down here? Because it's, it's in the dumpster. And you know, I was, I had a little Honda Civic Del Sol that I was loading up with all kinds of stuff that is now in my office, my garage, and my basement, waiting for somebody to start the exhibit of residential hotels. Uh, did you take pictures of that gambling cage? I did. I've got photographs. Is it um, in the book? Uh, no, it wasn't. All right. But there are a lot of pictures in the book. I had Finally, it was cut off. There's something like 65 images of children playing. Um, uh, one great photograph that I got from um, the Shokes Tokita family, uh, their mother operated the new Lucky Hotel. So amazing how somebody who doesn't even speak English manages to operate a residential hotel. But there were people behind the hotel, they, they had one um, he was um, a Norwegian immigrant who lived in the hotel and he actually constructed a playground behind the hotel for her children. And so the, one of the photographs is of um, Shokes Tokita, his brother Yuzo, and the, the um, other kids in the neighborhood playing. Thank, Thank you. you so that much. That was so great. I can't tell you how great that was. And I hope what to a take, pleasure I hope to, to meet you. I hope to take you. a class from you. Pleasure to meet you. Thanks for listening to At Length. I appreciate you taking the time. If you like this podcast, go to wherever you get your podcast and leave a review. It'll help spread the word. And don't forget to check out the article I wrote in Seattle Magazine, the December 2018 issue on Wong's work and the future of the ID. And of course, you can find her book, Building Tradition, Pan-Asian Seattle and Life in the Residential Hotels, wherever books are sold. It was published by Chin Music Press of Seattle. Thanks for listening. Take care.